Hey, thanks for listening to Everyday Greatness. It's a nice little show brought to you by our major sponsor, ARA Group, an employee-owned company that provides essential services for your facility and infrastructure and is one of Australia's biggest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness isn't rocket science. We're just trying to make you feel proud again of simply being a good, solid human being by speaking to some real people who found that the strength they needed to deal with any challenge in their life had been inside them the whole time. The ARA Group is proud to stand alongside Everyday Greatness, and we all hope that you enjoy the show. If the late Professor Chris O'Brien and his wife Gail ever had concerns the messages they were trying to pass on in their parenting weren't hitting the mark, their daughter and our guest today on Everyday Greatness, Juliet O'Brien, is living, breathing proof that they were nailing their parenting. Juliet is a salt-of-the-earth human being, generous, kind, intelligent, and (laughs) quite humorous. Juliet's the acorn that hasn't fallen far from the tree. Her sharp intelligence from all accounts is very similar to that of her father, the late Professor Chris O'Brien, an Australian head and neck surgeon who achieved national recognition in Australia as a compassionate surgeon in the reality television series RPA, where sadly he developed a brain tumour himself. He decided the Sydney Cancer treatment system was too spread out. So he came up with an inspired and all-in-one cancer treatment centre that was opened shortly after he passed away, with the first sod being turned by Juliet's mother, Gail. And that centre is now world-renowned and is named the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. From her mother, Gail, Juliet's inherited an old-school humility that accumulation of small goodness that feels like a waste of time to most people where simply not saying a bad word about anybody is something to be proud of. When Juliet speaks about her parents, her father's wisdom and her mother's humility, both ring loudly. Juliet has said about her parents, my mum, I've always adored her, but I was kind of my dad's daughter. He was my best friend and my mentor. That's so beautiful. On Everyday Greatness, we feel privileged to have spoken to some really good people, and Juliet O'Brien is absolutely one of the best. So it's our pleasure to welcome her to the show. G'day, Juliet. Oh, g'day, Scott. Lucky this is audio. I'm blushing so much. I'm bright red. <laughs> Colour radio. That's all we need. <laughs> you are a superstar. What, what's your everyday role in the world today? Oh, first, Scott, thank you so much for that amazingly beautiful and generous introduction. Um, Okay, my everyday role in the world, I guess you could say I wear a few hats. The trendy thing is to say portfolio sort of career. Um, I'm primarily a data journalist. Um, so my background is digital and data journalism. Um, I run a website called COVID19data.com.au, which still has daily updates um, of, you know, the eight states and territories, what's happening with COVID across the pandemic. Um, I'm teaching uh, data and entrepreneurial journal- journalism at UTS. Um, and I work a lot with um, 
the centre, Chris O'Brien Lifehouse, doing um, roles primarily because of my journal background. I do a lot of writing, um, writing for documents or reports or submissions or speeches and whatnot and annual reports and so on. What a busy soul you are. What a busy soul. <laughs> Keeps me out of trouble, <laughs> So, Julia, was it strange growing up in a household where the, the entire country just seemed to know your parents so well? It's so funny you ask that because only looking back do I recognise how unusual it was. But at the time, I just thought it was normal to have a dad who was a cancer surgeon who was kind of famous, Um, which (laughs) even now, like even now when I think, God, it's even incredible to be a surgeon, you know, but just growing up. Well, I remember being little, Dad would bring home uh, videos of his <laughs> operations sometimes <laughs> to watch them back and kind of and they'd be on the video, they'd be on the TV and yeah, it was sort of blood and gore on a Wednesday night sort of thing. But so <laughs> surgery, surgery was sort of normal to me. Um, and then this thing of them uh, when. When RPA started um, the TV show, I I think I was sort of around twelve or thirteen, and so it was on throughout high school, and yeah, it was just sort of normal for all the girls at school. And then when I went to university, for people to say things like, "Oh my God, Chris O'Brien is your dad," and one girl I remember at uni said, oh, "Chris O'Brien's your dad." I love him, and so does my mum. But his his arms are a bit hairy, <laughs> so I thought hairy arms were normal too. So you were a sub celebrity. <laughs> yeah, well, I always used to keep an eye out for the little photo on, of my face on Dad's desk on TV, and that would be the highlight. The highlight. Oh, that's yeah. fabulous! <laughs> that's fabulous. The worst part was when the director yelled "cut," and your dad had to go into action. Yes. <laughs> so what were your dreams, Juliet, when, when you were growing up, when you were just a little girl, what were your dreams? Oh, my gosh. Um, I don't know, Scott. Look, I've always been um, – the, the nice thing about, uh, you know, our household was there was never any pressure, even though mum was a physio and – well, she is a physio and dad was a, a doctor, there was never any sort of – pressure to channel us towards um, going into medicine. So it was always um, play to your strengths um, and mine were always sort of in, you know, speaking or the creative things. Um, and so I suppose throughout primary school I got to do some, you know, some fun like tournaments and things that are sort of thought problem solving and thought provoking but also performance and I guess that sort of stayed with me throughout high school as well so my my big things were English literature um drama and I was always encouraged to to go that way so I was a little bit uh lost to be honest I mean when I left school, I um, I started a degree called, what was it, Creative Arts at Macquarie University and it essentially aimed to get you into the administration side of the arts and it was just, I was 17, had no idea what to do. So I did that and deferred for a year and I remember Dad being a little bit, um, he wasn't too happy about me deferring from university mm-hmm. and so I sort of stopped, worked full-time at a cafe and at a nightclub and um, that was exactly what I needed and then I sort of restarted at about 
20 years old and got into journalism and that was when I really found my path. So did you find it or did they encourage you to go into journalism in any way or how did they support you in in your destiny? Um, Well, they, you know, uh, they, they really... I guess I went. I had to go through a certain pathway to get into UTS journalism. So I went through their their side college in search um, because you know I had done this false start and I. But to be honest, I didn't have the UAI to get into that degree. I think it was like high nineties or something. So what happened was I found this course and I said, I, you know, I went to mum and dad and I said, this is what I'd like to do and they said yeah do it Uh, so you know that was a 14-month course and then that matriculated into UTS Um, so look they just always supported me I I mean dad was um, he he never really demanded excellence Um, he just wanted us all to do our best Um, and it's really only looking back you know I mean the privilege of growing up with parents like that, you know, you you kind of don't fully appreciate it at the time. But I know that now um, I carry so many of the lessons with me that I learned just from being their daughter. Um, So, I mean, work ethic is definitely one of them. Um, But, you know, there, there are sort of practical and then there are more profound sorts of qualities and characteristics that I try to, that I actually actively think about and that I recognize that dad displayed and that I kind of learned by osmosis. And so I try to apply them. So like a practical example is um, like um, time management, um, <laughs> which isn't very sexy. <laughs> I, I remember like, you know, people, People kind of assumed, I I learned this after dad died, people assumed that a busy surgeon, a busy famous surgeon must not have been home very much when the opposite was true. He was always home, well, not always, but he was home by dinner time about 7.30 most nights and he he limited the number of conferences that he would say yes to. Um, So he would only travel three times a year or something. So that was about his priority, prioritising family. And in in terms of time management, I remember he'd do things like – He'd say, I'm just going to go inside and do X X for 45 minutes. I'm going to do this for one hour. And, you know, at the time that was just dad. But now I recognize it's like this thing of time boxing. And that's the only way that you can get a lot of things done is just by um, quarantining and compartmentalizing a time like that. So, you know, that is one example of how just being around dad, I, I learned that sort of thing. And I try to apply that in my life. But then there are other things as well where he, um, you know, when he was dying, he wrote a beautiful letter to my brothers and me, um, you know, prompting us to think about the values that we sort of prioritise in our life and how we are actively living to realise those values. And he said, and here are a few for values that you might want to consider and they're things like tolerance and fairness. So, yeah. Wow. So he's not well, but his focus was on the family. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
his focus was totally on us. Another funny little example was, um, you know, he knew he wasn't going to survive and he said, you know, a life skill that you all have to have is how to know how to drive a manual car. So (laughs) in between his operations, he was determined to teach us all how to drive manual. Seriously? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's brilliant. That is brilliant. Oh, good on him. (laughs) I'm grateful for it. I have a manual car now. I've paid two grand less for it. Uh, So work ethic, that's the thing that you really got out of it. That's, That's lovely. Now, you also, I've I've heard that your dad had a terrific sense of humour. So do do you remember any of his his best jokes? Oh, Scott, thank you for asking. (laughs) I'm always ready for a good joke if you've got one. Oh, you bet. Well, um, look, uh, I'll tell one that if anyone sort of, a lot of people will have heard this if you kind of knew that, but one funny thing was, he actually said this joke at his literary <laughs> lunch um, and at the time I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's telling that joke, but it just brought the house down. So here it is. As always, you start – it's not a joke, Scott. It's a true story. Yeah. Um, and do you know those dogs um, – we actually had one, a mini schnauzer. Yeah. Um, and they have – you know, they've got us – they've got the – Uh, eyebrows, bushy eyebrows, bushy, like, beard and a little moustache and everything. So um, this, my auntie, actually, she had a dog that was a mini schnauzer. Um, Actually, Barnaby's heard this joke. I told this at one of the... One of his stand-up nights. So she had um, <laughs> she she had a, a dog that um that it was a mini schnauzer, and the dog wasn't that old, six or seven years, and was starting to lose his hearing. And so she took him to the vet, and the vet had a look and said, "Look, there's nothing wrong with the ears themselves, but some of this uh, fur is becoming matted just on the inside, and it's um it's uh it's uh, affecting his hearing." So. I, I recommend the cheapest and most effective option is just to go to the pharmacy and pick up some hair removal cream like Nair or something and just dab it on the insides of his ears. So my auntie went off to the pharmacist, got a tube of Nair, took it up to the counter, and the pharmacist said to her, oh, look, if you're going to use this on your legs, make sure that you don't lie in the sun for about a week because it'll um, it'll become uh, sensitive. And my auntie said, oh, I'm not using it on my legs. And the pharmacist said, oh, okay, well, if you're going to use it under your arms, don't use deodorant for 24 hours. It'll really stink. My auntie said, I'm not using it under my arms. And the pharmacist said, well, would you mind telling me where you plan to put it? And my auntie said, well, if you must know, I'm going to put it on my schnauzer. (laughs) (laughs) And the pharmacist said, well, I wouldn't ride a bike for a week. Uh, but win. he had a lot. <laughs> he had so many jokes, Scott. Seriously, that's, but that's a beauty. <laughs> yes, I've, I've just lost it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that. Uh, you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to borrow it. Don't worry. Yeah, hey, yeah. It's it's good because it's a little bit playful, but it's you can still tell it to a literary lunch crowd. <laughs> Hey, this is Scott Gibbons. I'm with Juliet O'Brien and we're talking to her about some of the great things. And right now, Barnaby Howard's going to be taking over. So, Juliet, are you ready for Barnaby? 
Oh, born ready. <laughs> Here he comes. Very good answer, Juliet. <laughs> Hello, and thank you for joining us. Barnaby, thank you so much for having me. So your family has been dealt some really rough hands over the years, the loss of your father, Chris O'Brien, then the loss of your brother, Adam. Then you were diagnosed with cancer yourself recently. Did that freak you out a little bit and make you throw your head in your hands and say, why me? <laughs> uh, um. No, never. So dad's first reaction when he was diagnosed was not why me, it was why not me. And, you know, when it comes to cancer, it can, it, it's about statistics and probability as much as anything. Um, in terms of my own diagnosis, I think, I think, you know, our past experiences actually had the opposite impact. So when I heard that diagnosis, um, that there was a malignant nodule on my thyroid, um, it was actually, I, there was no panic whatsoever. It was just like knowing that all you can do then is take the next step. Um, and that's what happens in cancer care. Like you just have to think about, okay, well, what next? And then you hope for a good outcome with that one. And then it's about the next scan and you're hoping for a good outcome with that. That said, in that moment um, when I was delivered that news, um, the prognosis was good. I remember when Dr. Karen Phelps said, you know, at first mum and I, uh, mum was with me and that we sort of drew our breaths in to hear that it was um, malignant. Um, but then Dr. Phelps said, it's a good pro prognosis. And that's when we were like, oh, phew, because, you know, as anyone who has gone through cancer care knows that it's all about you, you, you're constantly thinking about those statistics and survivability. And I had what's called papillary thyroid carcinoma, which can be serious, but it does have a very, very high survival rate, especially for young people with small lesions. But, you know, the probably my brother, Adam, that that was um, that that definitely continues to be the most devastating uh, thing in my life. And even to be honest, Barnaby, even just talking about it right now, I can feel the emotion rising up in my throat because that was the one where, you know, it really um, made me question and probably continues to make me question, um, you know, it, like the, the most profound existential sorts of, um, you know, everything, like thoughts about what the point of it all is. Um, in terms of dad, you know, you could kind of buy into the narrative that maybe there is a, a plan or maybe maybe things do happen for a reason, you know. Like I, I think there was absolutely no political appetite before dad got sick for a comprehensive cancer centre. Um, in New South Wales and even though like um, there were, you know, quite a few medical practitioners were advocating for it, including dad, but it was that uh, moral authority of dad's and that platform that he used that really got the traction there. And so you could, you could, you could argue that things happen for a reason and dad sometimes said his tumour was a gift. But my brother, Adam, um, he was 29. Um, he was a strong, fit, healthy, um, worked as a security guard, so fit, healthy young man. And um, about a year after dad died, uh, Adam, he started having seizures in his sleep 
and we don't really know how many he had, uh, but it was probably, you could probably count them on one hand. Um, and the fifth one took his life. So he went to sleep and he never woke up. Um, and at the age of 29. And so, you know, I, I saw that as highway robbery. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would never think why me, but I do think, I do think why add. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess it's taken a lot of work just to kind of let go of um, feelings of thinking of how unfair that was on him and because that's life, hey, that's the universe. It's unfair in many ways. Juliet, I know for a fact that your family unit inspire a lot of Australian people and you inspire me and you've just nailed a, made it even a, a bigger inspiration. Do you feel like some people in society take relationships with their own families for granted to a certain extent now that you know what it's like when they're gone? Yeah. Yeah, we do, don't we, Barnaby? Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that, by the way, but yeah, that that is um, – so now there's mum, there's my younger brother James, he's six years younger than me, um, and there's me. And in that unit of, you know, we were five, um, we, are, we are a very tight little trio now. Um, and, yeah, and, and also our extended family. Um, you know, there, there are parts of our extended family who were just there through thick and thin – um, and I guess I I do think that people um, underestimate the value of just showing up and just being there in those tough times. And so I guess one little example for me is, um, you know, think even practical things like moving house, I think culturally – we do kind of we keep our distance um, sometimes at those hard moments because it's hard. It's hard to be there, and also we tend to assume that there are other people around who are sort of closer than us, um, and that they're they're probably there helping out. But you know, having been at the epicenter of it, there were people who showed up and were just there and then there were people who kind of kept their distance and there's absolutely no judgment whatsoever but in how I try to you know treat my family and friends now I try to be the one who shows up because I think that's that's um not to not to to, I mean Jesus I'm not perfect that's for sure but um yeah I think that's sort of the lesson and that's something that we could all take away from it just turn up very very wise advice Juliet so you wrote a book about your mother, This Is Gail, and your father's biography, Never Say Die, were very popular, both very popular all around the world. Did you read anything or find anything out when researching your mother's book that made you go, oh, wow, I didn't know that about them? Oh, yeah, I suppose so. Writing that book was an incredible experience. It was it was much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. I had kind of taken a pretty pragmatic view of how how it would go. So I pitched it to HarperCollins and I had finished studying law and I knew that it had to be 80,000 words. So I was like, 
and in law, I would always write my essays the night before. Um, so I was like, that's okay. It's like 16, 5,000 word essays. And I, I used to write a 5,000 word essay in a night. So how hard can it be? But it ended up being this incredible process of interviewing mum. Um, and uh, we would sit down and have one-on-one uh, interviews. And then as kind of things became busier with work and everything, it might be that I would type up a list of questions and then she would respond to them by um, dictation or something. Um, So there was a real unfolding process there and there was a real cathartic process both in terms of talking to mum and also in my own writing. Um, So, yeah, like it's, it's a pretty... A unique sort of journey to write, to be the writer where the subject is your mother. And, uh, you know, I had to talk to mum about, you know, her early relationship with dad, um, then, you know, how their their marriage over the years, um, all of the intimate moments um, through his sickness, you know. Um, and so, I mean, one one example uh, is um, I remember when I was ten, and I got home. I write about this in the book, and um, <laughs> Mum was in the kitchen um, with this huge fish. Um, I like huge. I. How 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 big would it be? Like I I remember it being like it could have been like sort of sixty centimeters in length, and she had it by the tail, and she was trying to scale it, and all of these scales were popping off, and I was like, wow, what's that? And Mum said, um, oh, a patient gave your father this fish, and now he's invited twelve twelve people around to eat it. Um. And by the by, I think a few people got sick after that dinner, actually. <laughs> but um, but I remember, Mum, that was the first time I ever heard Mum say the F word um, because she said this effing fish. And I was like, ooh. But it, it was a bit like that. It was where Dad, you know, Dad was pretty dynamic and full throttle all, all of the time and um, he would, um, you know, he'd want a, a – them to host like colleagues and whatnot for dinner and, you know, mum would kind of sort it all out and she was an amazing cook and hostess and everything. But, you know, talking about um, I'm, you know, in my late 30s now and, you know, talking about that from a relationship point of view, um, you know, between a man and a woman is kind of different from how I saw it at the time, which was through the eyes of a child who just adored her dad. Um, But, yeah, I think it was a little bit trying sometimes for my mother. Let's just put it that way. You've got some cracking stories, Julia. They're very entertaining. You've led a very full life. I'm going to hand you back to Scott Gibbons, the uh, grand fromage of this operation. So thank you so much for talking, Juliet, and I'll pass you back on to Scott. Thank you so much, Barnaby. It's an honour. I might be the grand fromage, but he's the big cheese. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So I guess you feel proud about giving back to society in in the the way your parents did because you're, you're doing so much outside of your normal work, aren't you? Yeah, for sure. Look, that's that that's definitely the MO. I, I talked I remember talking to a friend once, I was asking him to get involved in a sort of fundraiser. And um <laughs> I remember 
watching his face as it was a little bit of a revelation for him. He was like, yeah, yeah, I could give back. And I was like, God, that's weird. Like, it's just something, and we are not unique. I think there are certain parts of society that do do this where it's just natural to constantly, um, you know, just whatever, organise something for the community or, you know, do something unpaid. It's this unpaid work sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's it's just, it's it's normal. It's just part of the fabric of what what we do and it's just because of how I was brought up. Yeah. As part of doing what you're doing, you've also created a website about COVID. What's that website called? Sure. It's covid19data.com.au. Um, Covid19data, D-A-T-A dot com dot A-U, yeah. And what yeah, was, exactly. What's the reasoning behind that website? Well, that came about because um, I was working at the Herald at the time. I was doing sort of casual shifts in different digital roles and on, a, you know, it was early March 2020 and I um, I was working as the desk editor on the digital desk, which means you take copy from journalists and you, you're just producing them. You sub-edit, produce it, get it up online. But you're also looking for different sorts of assets to bring the story to life. So it might be images and I wanted a chart. And at that time we had 40 cases of COVID across the country that had been announced, but there was no uh, way to visualise that. And there was also the data itself was not being tracked. So I, I pulled it together primarily for the Herald, but it was a very manual way of tracking every single case individually. Um, So, you know, the Herald couldn't really support it um, because it was just too manual and I was only a casual. So then I I did it independently and um, that's when, you know, the Australian public stepped in to support it and that's why I'm still doing it. Wow. Still doing it two and a half years later because that, the website. So that was the first COVID tracker in Australia. There are others now and um, there are better ones for sure. But the public said, you know, it, it basically went viral. A quarter of a million people visited <laughs> it in the first week. And then they donated and they donated to support the website. So, you know, Pete, I think Australians really you know, in many ways, our our governments were a little bit, have been a little bit slow during some parts of the pandemic. And it's the public who have said, we're concerned and we want this to happen. And supporting my website was one example of that, where they wanted the data, the raw data. So that's a real positive that you brought out. So there was only 40 cases and, and you saw the vision of creating something from there and then the public got involved. And then that's a pretty positive thing, isn't it? Where the, where oh, the public yeah. the public support you rather than everybody else putting their hand out. The, the public I, are I, saying we want this information and we're prepared to support it. That says a heck of a lot about you. Oh, well, yeah, I, I, I think it says a lot about, you know, the people. And, um, yeah, I totally agree. I think people 
I think that was one of the big lessons is that people sort of want uh, information which doesn't make them panic, you know, using words like cases surge, cases soar. Mm. Like people want to be able to see it um, without editorial and projections. So, yeah, that was that was a real lesson that, that people want that sort of information. And now I, w- I would really like us to take the next step and apply this sort of data transparency to other areas of, you know, that are in the public interest, whether that be in health or climate or anything. Aren't you good? So is that another <laughs> another project that you've got on the back burner? That's right. That's one that's in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Too many fires, global warming. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Good point. <laughs> so to, just okay, to yeah. encapsulate your, your mum and dad, so what would you say were the just a, a nice thing about each one of them? A mm, nice thing about okay. your mum, nice thing about your dad. Okay. Look, the first thing about both of them is amazing senses of humour. Like dad was cheeky and hilarious and irreverent and always present for us as kids and it didn't matter what he did for a job or who he was. Um, that's how I remember him as a dad and those are the best things. Um, and with mum, mum has just been so um, – I've seen her do it to me and she did it for dad too where she um, does not ask for any credit or congratulations for herself. Everything that she still does is um, – you know, dedicated to dad, even, you know, in death, um, where she works to uphold his legacy and his name. And her she, her being so supportive in that way, she does that for me as well, like in terms of, you know, all of my different projects and flip-flopping with my career and she's just been eternally patient and supportive. <laughs> There's a lot of people who have got to be so grateful for what your family have done to create the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. There's people that I know that are going there. There's people that are yet to go there and people who have been there and they've all been wonderful in their praise for the care and the fact that it is a, a, if you will, a one-stop shop, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, Uh, I think that's right. Like, um, and and it's also this idea of patient-centred care compassionate care, holistic care, and in terms of cancer, the comprehensive aspect where you've got it all in the one facility Mm. and also that there is research that is in there and driving it so that if you do have a desperate sort of prognosis, you do have access to, um, you know, the most cutting-edge sorts of treatments. Now, that's not to say that I know a lot of patients who do uh, have to fight hard and be their own advocates, you know, even in the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse, mm. uh, because that is sort of what it comes down to a lot where you've got to push push to get your the best outcomes for yourself and your family. But, yeah, I mean, you know, now that we're in this period where this is becoming normalised, uh, comprehensive, patient-centred, holistic, compassionate cancer care 
you know, imagine going back 15 years where you with cancer, you could be in a ward with someone who has a completely unrelated disease. You're not tapped into, you've got your chemo in one place, your surgery in another place, your radiotherapy in another place. You're not tapped into supportive services mm. like physio, mental health. Um, you know, it's just we've come so far in the last sort of 15 years. So, Juliet, those people that are grateful and want to show their gratitude, how do they donate to the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse? What's what's the website that they should look up there? All right. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Yeah, and one thing to say is it is a, an independent hospital, so quote, unquote, private, but it is not for profit. Um, and so all of the donations and fundraising get put back into uh, improving patient experiences and outcomes. So all donations and fundraising um, help. And the way to do it would be to go to our website, which is mylifehouse.org.au. And you can click on a button there that says donate now. And on that page, you could actually, if you wanted to talk to the development team um, about having an event or so you could make a one-off donation, but you could also talk to the team if you want to get involved and that's the place you'll you'll find out the contact details. How brilliant. So that's my, M-Y, lifehouse.org.au. That's just brilliant. So people can either donate or get involved and maybe create a function. And I've I've already said to you, if you need an auctioneer, I'm there for you. Now, your mum's book, your mum's book, This Is Gail, and your dad's book, Never Say Die, People who want to buy those, how do they how do they do that? Where should they go? Uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Look, they're both available um, uh, by Booktopia or Amazon, and we've actually got them both in the hospital as well. So if anyone is in the hospital, they just have to ask and they can buy one there. I've actually got quite a few copies of This Is Gail in my closet too. So, um, <laughs> Get her out of the closet. Sign them. <laughs> so the, right. the, the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse is where people can go now, the, and that's in Newtown, isn't it? Yes. In New South Wales. Yep, exactly. It's right across the road from Royal Prince Alfred Hospital um, on Missenden Road in Camperdown. Oh, Camperdown. Camperdown, you're exactly right. You're good. You know your stuff. <laughs> you're excellent. <laughs> Can I say thank you? Because you, you have just been just delightful. Just I love your voice. Your voice is just fabulous. <laughs> There's a real <laughs> laugh in it. So I've got a, a thank, thank you, you Julia Scott. O'Brien. And you're I wonderful. Hope that I, I hope that we can hang out at a function sometime when you're auctioneer and I'll just I'm I'll ready. be woohooing. I'm ready. I'm okay. ready. So <laughs> let me just say thank you to you and, and for joining and sharing and, and for your incredible family. And, and for those people who are listening, thank you for listening and thank you to the ARA group for being our major sponsor for the fifth year in a row which is just terrific. Look Studio Australia, the people who do the recording for us. Look Studio Australia, magic, magic people. If you need a podcast done, you talk to them. But I hope when you put your device down later on and you lift your head up, you put your shoulders back and then you walk down the street proud to be an everyday Joe or Joanne Baker Donuts. And that's officially a wrap for Season 5. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the pearls of wisdom of our guests and, and what they've imparted for you over the last 12 weeks. And we hope that... They've helped you appreciate the people around you and made you realise just how important they are and will continue to be in your life. Your family is just so vital. And if you're just a, an everyday Harry or Harriet Saker Rolls, then we hope we've helped you realise that greatness 
is inside you. You've just got to know where to look. And to find out more about the show, just go to our website, which is everydaygreatness.com.au. That's everydaygreatness.com.au. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening today, joining in on Season 5, and we're already looking forward to bringing you Season 6. And if you're a new listener, just go to everydaygreatness.com.au. Share us around, listen in, and you can go back to Seasons 1, 2, 3, and 4. Hey, I'm Scott Gibbons, and with Barnaby Howe, we'd love to welcome you back for next season. And thank you, Juliet. Thank you so much, Scott. You, she's fabulous. <laughs> uh, you were just a yes. <laughs> I'm stoked. <laughs> that was so fun. Thank you so much to both of you. Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's, it's a pleasure having you on. It was really bubbly, just a fun, yeah, as you said, just a fun conversation. Yeah. It's really cool. Barnaby, oh, ba- Barnaby steers the ship. I'm just in, <laughs> <laughs> I just puff the sails a bit up. Oh, what a team. No, thank you so much for the beautiful conversation and the questions and everything. I've, I'm going to binge. I'm going to binge on everyday greatness. <laughs> <laughs> Um, binge on season one. I interviewed your mother. Yeah, at, yeah. At Chris I O'Brien Lifehouse. Did you like how I said Chris thank O'Brien Lifehouse, not just Lifehouse? Thank you so much. Claire. Thank you. Thank you. We learn quick. We're only males, but we learn. <laughs> you do. You do. Oh, no. Thanks for that. I remember that. I didn't realize you're up to season five, though. God. God yeah, yeah, we're rolling. Neither did I. I just read that. <laughs> that's, my first, that's my first day with Barney. <laughs> <laughs> Just do what you're told. <laughs> do what I'm told, yeah. He's <laughs> a good boy. Yeah. I'm going to have a listen. Well, thank you so much. It's honestly, it's just humbling and an honour to be asked, but then all of those beautiful questions as well. You're way too generous. No, you can't be too generous with a person like you, Juliet. It's an absolute <laughs> pleasure. Thank you again for joining us. We'll let you go and get back to your life. Yeah, have a terrific weekend, Juliet. You too. Beautiful to meet you, Scott. Right. And if I you hope that write, we can put, all hang out sometime. Yeah, put down my number zero four. Yep. One zero. Uh huh. Six two one. Yep. Two one six. Okay. And, and they call me Mr. Sold. M R S O L D. So if you go to mrsold.com.au. Yes, um, I have been googling you oh, as oh. we've been speaking. <laughs> so I've got it. I'm connecting with you on LinkedIn right now. <laughs> Facebook stalking already. <laughs> See you, Julia. That's it. All right. Thanks, Julia. Bye. 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 Bye.